This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. Here with me today are some of the royalty of the Carver College of Medicine. Bow down before Marissa Evers. Hello there. Neil in respect to Kylie Miller. Hey, y'all. Avert your eyes from the haughty gaze of Brendan George. (laughs) Oh, no. Hello. (laughs) And look with reverent adoration upon Sanjeeva Weerasinghe. Hello. Um, Hi, guys. Thank you for joining me again today. But wait, 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 wait. Among these greats of medical education, we have a visitor. Dr. Emily Silverman is an academic hospitalist at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and the host and creator of The Nocturnists, a live storytelling event and podcast for physicians and other healthcare workers. Dr. Silverman, welcome to the Short Code Podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, the, so you reached out to us a while back and you said, uh, you know, hey, we're doing a thing called The Nocturnists. And usually when I get these emails, you know, no offense. But usually when I get these emails, I'm like, no, I don't want to talk about your uh, new prostate exam device <laughs> thing. Um, and this happens more and more how often. often like, does, how often do these emails come in? I get these and emails quite a bit. Dave, like, maybe it is like my burning desire to talk about new prostate devices. I, <laughs> this is a student-led podcast. <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, I've gotten things from Caribbean law, uh, med schools. I, I've gotten everything. But I gather, but but when you sent this email, I was like immediately um, interested because A, you were a podcaster like us, and, and B, you were doing something really interesting, this live storytelling event. Um, and I gather that this all started when you were a second year resident, right? That's right. So this, this would be like around this time, uh, 2016. Yeah. Right? Yeah. January. And you asked some of your colleagues to get up on stage and tell stories about their lives as physicians during this live event. Why, why did you want to do that? Yeah, I always had a bit of a creative streak, I would say. And, um, and I also had this love for the sciences and for medicine. And I was one of those kids running around the pl- playground in kindergarten saying, I want to be a doctor. And it was kind of like a childhood thing. But mm-hmm. um, I did have this creative side. And I was pretty much um, set on the pre-med path. And then when I got to college, I thought to myself, like, oh, gosh, I don't know if I actually want to do pre-med because I'm worried that my creative side will be stifled. And I actually took an internship at an art gallery in New York and kind of dipped my toe in that world for a while. And then uh, pretty quickly came back to medicine and decided I was going to do it. So Mm. I uh, went to medical school at Johns Hopkins, uh, which was awesome. I had a great time in medical school and I had a great group of friends there, um, some of whom were like you know, partners in like wanting to be artists. And there were a couple of friends there who I made like funny videos with. And um, it was just kind of like a casual outlet for creativity, I would say. Yeah. Um, and so that that scratched my itch pretty, pretty well. 
Um, but then when I went to residency, um, which was at UCSF, and it was a great residency, um, I don't know. Residency is different from med school. Um, the time commitment and uh, how enveloping it is and how much stamina it requires, I found, for me anyway, to be much, much more intense. Um, and I came out of intern year realizing that I hadn't really tended to myself in a lot of ways. I mean, in some of the basic ways, like basic hygiene and nutrition <laughs> <laughs> and exercise, like those things kind of slip through the cracks when you're working Q4 call. Um, but another part of myself that I had really neglected that year was my uh, artistic side and my creative side and my humanistic side. And I came out of my intern year feeling um, pretty, uh, pretty messed up, actually. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think part of that is also, you know, your job as an intern is to spend all your time in the hospital around other people who are ill and sick and suffering and, you know, many of whom are dying as well. And you witness that. Um, but at the same time, you're on, you're on the clock. Um, you're under a lot of time pressure. You're on a lot of pressure to document. Um, there's this push to just kind of get out as quickly as you can so you can go home and do those things, like take a shower and eat something healthy. Um, and so it's a very tough balance to be in that intense environment um, and still be present with your patients. Um, and I found myself in this pattern where I would go to work and see all of these, you know, fairly distressing, intense things and then go home and just kind of pass out and go to sleep and wake up and do it again and then come home and pass out and wake up and do it again. And I was like, man, like, I don't really have any place to process uh, what I'm seeing or what's going on. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of the combination of those two things. I think the one thing was wanting to reignite my creative side, which had been shut down for so long. And then on the other side, it was this desire to reconnect with that human side of myself that I think necessarily, you know, we all kind of put a wall up when we're in training um, just for practical reasons. So that's uh, where the idea was born. I, I actually it was triggered by going to see a live performance of The Moth, um, which is another podcast of live stories. And I immediately thought to myself, I was like, Oh, that's it. Like we need to be telling stories. Yeah. Um, and that's where the idea came from. Were, um, so when you asked your colleagues, were they reluctant? Were they excited? Were they, was there a mix of reaction? It was both. I think people were, um, excited and reluctant. I think <laughs> as, as a doctor or as a resident, um, a lot of people have stories to tell, like there's no dearth of, of stories. Um, but I think there is this tendency to want to not make the job about you because it's not when you're at work, it's not really about you. It's about the patient. And we kind of try to keep ourselves in the background or neutral. And so I think it actually takes a lot of like poking and prodding to get the physician to step forward and say, like, let's talk about me for a second. <laughs> um, like, how did that affect me? And how is this rotation affecting me and my emotional health and my psychological health? And, you know, how is my professional life intersecting with my, my personal life? And um, I think it's changing and it's getting better, but I think for a long time there was definitely this culture of just kind of like suck it up and don't get too mushy and gushy about it. Um, and I think one of the things I'm trying to do with that event is really break down that taboo and that barrier and encourage residents and doctors and even faculty to 
realize that it's okay to come forward and be vulnerable and talk about times when they've um, doubted themselves or been insecure or been afraid or something like that. Um, and so I, I think it does take some coaxing to get people to come out and, and do that and tell those stories. But then once they do, usually the feedback I get is, wow, that was really cathartic for the storyteller. And then from the audience, they're like, oh, wow, I'm not alone. Um, I, I went through something similar. So um, I'd say it was both easy and hard to get people to stand up and participate. So Marissa, before the show, we were talking about um, med students and their reluctance to get involved with things like the humanities. Um, it's, this sounds kind of similar to, to that, but different in that, you know, it's like, why this is a waste of time. Right. Because we have uh, kind of in our curriculum, we kind of have required things to kind of make us do uh, humanities. And there are some of our classmates who are uh, against it entirely and have brought it up to uh, faculty that they don't want to participate at all. And what kind of advice would you give to them having this experience uh, with people who are reluctant about like kind of like sharing their stories and like being or expressing more of their creative side? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because, you know, if you're working 80 hour weeks and you have like a languishing relationship back home or you haven't been to the gym for a week or you haven't played your guitar for a month or whatever it is, like it's kind of annoying when you're trying to get through your day and someone's like, let's stop and pause and read a poem right now. Like <laughs> when it's kind of forced into your busy day, it doesn't really it doesn't really work. So um I don't know the answer. I think part of it is just making sure to insert into parts of the day that are already feeling decompressed where people, you have to create a desire for it. And I'm not, I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do that within the format, like the formal structure of the medical education. Like, is it an elective at night? Is it, um, you know, something that's, uh, that's taught or uh, explored separate from the normal curriculum? Is there a way to embed it in the curriculum such that people are enthusiastic about it? And I haven't really found a good answer. Um, but what I do with my events is I, um, try to separate them entirely from the institution and the classroom and, and school. So um, my events take place in beautiful spaces, artistic spaces, theaters, galleries, um, where there's art, um, there's booze, uh, there's like cool, loud music playing in the background. It kind of feels like a party. Um, and, you know, maybe there's like some strung up lights or maybe there's a musician playing. Um, and it's just the kind of place I wanted it to be the kind of place where people would like come and have a beer in their hand and look around and be like, yeah, like right. I'm here right now. These are my um, people. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so far it's worked. I mean, the events, they sell out really quickly. And I think part of the reason that they do is people are looking for ways to engage with this content. Um that is pleasurable. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm very deliberately decided not to have this be like a mandated session with med students in a fluorescently lit conference room. Um, so I think some of it is around how you frame it and the psychology around that. Um, I do think there is room to incorporate it more formally, probably into medical curricula across the country, but I, I still need to do some more brainstorming about how to make that effective. Because I agree with you, it's a self-selecting audience, the people who show up to my events and um, there may be others who just aren't really that into it. And um, I, the, the worst position that I would want to be in is trying to force, you know, force it into someone who doesn't, who doesn't want it. But right. um, hopefully what I 
want to accomplish over my career is make people understand like and think like I want this I want to experience this mm. and recognize its value yeah. I love that I, I just think like I, so some of the frustration with I think this um, with our medicine and society or kind of broader humanities based stuff is that people I think do feel forced and it's just you're the picture of like just come and see come, come and see to, at this event rather than like the conference room with the fluorescent lights is totally true so so I, I it's getting my wheels turning in my mind of like how do we change make it even if you have to make it required how do you make it feel like not required right. less uh, of a check, <laughs> like checklist and more of a in, like invitation type of thing yeah yeah, yeah, you definitely want to break out of that checklist mentality. It's it's the uh, it's supposed to be the anti-checklist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we were, that's another thing we were talking about before <laughs> the show is you know we have this sort of wellness passport thing that we do here at the the College of Medicine, and um, you know the the it's it's pretty misunderstood in a way by a lot of people because they you know they think they've been handed this checklist of things to do, um, mm -hmm. you know, so go for a run. Uh, read a book you know this kind of thing one of them is like literally go see your primary care physician for an annual physical <laughs> <laughs> it's like just take care of yourself yeah it, it, the point is to the, the point of this is is not to give students a checklist of things to do it's to sort of uh, you know help them see things you know like when you give advice to a patient on ways to manage their stress or their lives or you know it's it's to demonstrate like how that might be done and the kinds of ways it's difficult for people to change their behavior. But, but the point is immediately students, you know, decide, Oh, this is a checklist of things that I have to do. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have so many things to do. Why should I, you know? And I think it's easy to get into the checklist mentality because a lot of us are such type A people and it's, yeah. it's cathartic. To be like, <laughs> oh, I finished something off my list, but we're also like, I, I know in your last episode that you posted, I think on Wednesday, it was an episode about like, we put ourselves in this space of just making things a checklist. And I think it was, how do, how do you say her name? Was it Milana? Milana, or, yes. Milana, how she talked about it was like, she was missing the moment because she thought of all the things that she had to be doing. And I, I like, mm -hmm. that resonated with me a lot. And I like really appreciated that episode. Yeah, I think um, you're right. I think people who are attracted to the field of medicine are generally like high achievers, um, very self-driven, you know, probably the type of person who does have an ongoing to-do list for themselves, both personally and uh, at work. Um, and yeah, it's, t it's tough to break out of that. I think with the, the whole thing about burnout and wellness and lifestyle, which is a really hot topic right now in both med schools and residencies, is that there, it, it, it's so tied to the system. Um, on the one hand, you know, like to have a passport that tells you to go see your primary care doctor doesn't really matter if you like legit don't have time to go see yeah. your primary care doctor. <laughs> um, and that's a systemic issue that needs to be fixed. But on the other hand, um, it can feel so personal and so individual. Like, why should I have somebody else telling me what restores me? Like, nobody knows what restores me better than me. And I, what I really need is like a half day off to do whatever it is that's going to restore mm -hmm. me instead of, you know, like a half day of residency Olympics where we're in matching t-shirts and throwing and I think um, it's a lot easier to get at the systemic or the, or the systems issue than it is to get at the individual issue. I think 
to an extent, you just have to kind of let people decide for themselves how they're going to be well. I think the issue with residency, maybe a little less with med school, is there's just no time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so until residents have their schedules decompressed, I think there's going to be this ongoing issue of um, just not having time to do things like go to the doctor or process your emotions. Um, but I'm glad that we're talking about it. I think it's good that it's it's being written about and being discussed um, and being addressed uh, by all of these you know institutions. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. How do your live events work? Do you get? Do they, is there a theme? It seems like there might be a theme to each uh, to each live event. Yes, um, we pick a theme. Uh, so prior themes have been firsts, promises, love. Uh, we did one on death and dying recently, um, and that just helps people kind of focus because, um, you know, like I said, everybody has so many stories. If you're working in medicine, it's sort of like you, you have stories. It's not a question. It's just how do you even begin to open the bank and, and sift through what's there? And I think having a theme can help people focus their, their search. Um, and so we select a theme and then we send out an email uh, to the Nocturnist listserv, which has grown a lot over the last two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we say, you know, we have this event coming up on this day. This is the theme. Please click here to submit your story idea. And uh, and then we just choose from those um, submissions which ones we want to feature. And then we, you know, sell tickets and um, put it all together. That's amazing. Awesome. I don't know why that's so amazing to me. Like, <laughs> Like, it all makes sense, but at the same time, it's like, People will buy tickets. <laughs> <laughs> but so I'm a huge fan of the moth. And that's like, that's something I do for myself every week. I wait for that new like week's episode to drop. And that can be, you know, an hour of time I'm taking a walk or working out or even just listening on the bus if it's quite a tight time frame. Um, so that was when I started listening to The Nocturnist. I was like, oh, wow, this is literally so great it's like the moth but with stories that are you know i can relate to i can listen and kind of look up to you know just today i was listening to the one about having to run your first code and (laughs) simultaneously i had a little bit of anxiety in me of like oh gosh this is a universally like really stress inducing thing but it's neat to as a person who's like so intrigued by people's stories to get to listen to stories that relate to our lives, but, you know, sometimes we want to escape from the medicine and all that, but I don't feel like it, you know, when I try and get away from it at school or in the hospital, I can now listen to it and be like, oh, this doesn't feel over, you know, crossing a line of like play and work mixing. Mm -hmm. So I've still enjoyed listening to it. Um, And always I've really wanted to attend live moth events and the way you describe the setup of like lights in these beautiful spaces. I'm like, yeah, I would buy a ticket. I would go to that. It sounds so nice. So (laughs) it is nice. We how do you feel about satellite events? Yeah, we had kind of discussed (laughs) this before uh... the show of, (laughs) well, why doesn't she, you know, take it on the road like the moth to other, you know, teaching hospitals or, you know, med schools, academic medical centers and I'm sure so many people have you know stories they want to tell so have you thought about the future of the nocturnist and how you would grow the show yeah absolutely so first of all I'm so happy to hear that the stories are resonating with you because that's exactly the point of all of this is to 
to, you know, foster connection, bring people together and maybe laugh a little bit along the way, cry a little bit along the way. That's the whole point. So I'm so glad that um, you're liking what you're hearing. And yeah, you know, it started as these live events. And for a while, people were like, oh, you should do podcasts, you should do podcasts. And it took me a while to assemble a team because I realized pretty quickly that was not something I had the skill set to do on my own. Um, and so that's one way to get the stories out there to a larger audience. But the other way is to take the show on the road, just like you said. And I think while the podcast is amazing, there definitely is um, something uh, special about you know, collectively being in a room with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this kind of magic that comes out of it. And I think there's also something really cool that comes out of it um, with like flattening of the hierarchy because mm -hmm. um, at our very oh my first God, you're just hitting all my, You're just hitting all the things I want you to hit. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, at, at our very first event, which was tiny, it was like 40 people, we had two faculty members participate. And I'm so glad that they did because I think that sent, set a really nice precedent um, because now um, we have we have doctors that are in different stages of training, everything from medical students to residents to fellows to docs who are in their 80s and have been retired for you know decades. Um, and it's just really cool to be like sitting in a chair next to your supervisor or whatever, and you're looking on the stage at some nurse or some you know other resident, and everyone's just kind of brought down to the same level. And I think that's something that's really refreshing for everyone. And I think that I always like to you know think really deliberately about the sequence of stories because I think there's always a story within the stories, and sometimes you can order them in a way where themes come up in in different places, and it's like oh that's kind of how that theme is viewed from the med student side, or this is how the theme is viewed once you've been in practice for decades. And there's like this nice dialogue, I think, that sometimes occurs between stories. Um, I think the main limitation in bringing the show on the road is quality control. Um, so as I've been doing these events, I've learned a ton about story theory and what makes a good story and a compelling story. And I've read books about screenwriting and I've read story theorists. Um, and I've just been kind of like self-teaching, uh, because I, I do a lot of the coaching actually. Um, early on, we didn't have coaches because we had no idea what we were doing. But, uh, <laughs> these days, um, when we select people to participate, um, they're signing up for like a pretty intense back and forth um, coaching mm -hmm. process where we really help them uh, refine their story into something, you know, that's really a work of art. Um, and we, you know, these are doctors, they're not actors or performers. And so we don't expect them to go on stage and like tap dance. Um, but uh, there is a way to take a story and really give it structure and give it pacing and rhythm and to create meaningful moments and funny moments. And that's what we try to help people do. Um, and the difference is really astounding before and after. And so I think were I to take this show on the road, I would just need to build out more teams on the ground to to make sure that the caliber of the stories is up to snuff. Um, and so that's something that I am thinking a lot about. And um, you know, we'll, we'll need some time and, and ideally some money. <laughs> well, your friends here at Iowa are happy to out. be a pilot center for you. A, you know, a yeah. trial run. You've got some. You've got some admirers here who want to be a but part of that when the time comes. This is something that I think we've lost of uh, or lost a lot of in our kind of recent culture is this oral st storytelling um, and the process of like 
getting up and sharing stories with people because as someone who loves to listen to podcasts and participate in the podcast, it's still something that is very individual to us. And I feel like even now in clerkships in the hospital, it's sometimes just me in my own head for so long. And then I will put on my headphones, get on the bus, listen to a podcast. But as you kind of alluded to this whole being in the moment at a live event sort of thing, we get to experience it with other people. So often I listen to a podcast and there's something I'm like, this is hilarious or this story is so moving. I want my friends to hear this. I want to talk about it with them. But trying to get everyone to simultaneously listen to a podcast, it's a lot more difficult Mm -hmm. to then have a conversation and really tie that into our experiences together. So these live events like really cultivate that, both the oral storytelling and the conversation after the fact. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, um, the Mayo Clinic just put out like a multi-step process to address burnout in medicine. And one of the strongest ones that they talk about is the importance of building a sense of culture and community within these large, sprawling academic institutions, which sometimes can feel really um, kind of depersonalizing. Um, And so I agree with you. I think um, the community building aspect of some of this is actually something that I didn't even realize until the event started selling out and I was like, wow, people, they want, they want to feel like their institution has this sense of culture or togetherness. Um, and that, that's a big part of it. Um, and then your comments about, you know, the skill of oral storytelling, I think it's definitely, you know, an artistic skill and a writerly skill. You guys are in like the writer's capital of the country right now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, the graduate school at Iowa being so prominent, but, um, those skills are not existing in a vacuum, like those are very translatable to the practice of medicine. If you just think about, you know, what are you doing when you present on rounds? Like you're shaking, you're you're (laughs) leaving a story basically. Um, And you may notice in yourselves and your colleagues, like the people who are more successful at oral presentations um, are the ones who, you know, perhaps can create a little bit of context or a little bit of suspense or, you know, a convincing argument. Um, And I think, uh, it's a performative skill, really, um, and one I think that is not to be underestimated, and one that isn't really taught in that with in that way with that slant. I think as much as it maybe could be or should be. Do, do you have some recommendations for like a book or two that? Uh, so I've uh, I've read a little bit of like Donald Miller stuff about telling a good story, um, but are there like other yeah there resources that you would just be like fun to read as an entry point in an, sure. uh, how to tell a better story. Um, actually, I find um, the books on screenwriting to be really helpful because uh, when you're writing in a literary style, I think there's a lot of license to experiment and kind of break out of the traditional box of narrative. But when you're writing a screenplay, there's a pretty strict formula, I, I think, that people have to adhere to. Um, and there's an, uh, an author, Sid Field, uh, S-Y-D, and then Field. Um, who wrote uh, one of these like seminal texts on the art of screenwriting. It's a little outdated, but just in terms of the examples that they use and the, and the movies that they reference in the book. But I think the principles really ring true. Um, and, and it's super interesting. I mean, basically, uh, you need a glimpse into the character before uh, before the conflict. And then you need, you need an inciting incident, um, something that sets the story into motion. Um 
and then you need, you know, conflict in the middle, and ideally it kind of crescendos to a climax, and then there's a denouement or kind of a resolution at the end. Um, and that's really it. That's kind of the basic structure. Um, you can get, you know, more uh, into like variations of that. Um, but, uh, and some people refer to it as a three act structure, um, a beginning, middle, and end. It, it's all very basic, but I think um, it does help to read about it in an academic way and kind of wrap your mind around it in a more concrete way. Um, but yeah, the Sidfield book is good. There's another book called Saving the Cat um, that a lot of screenwriters use. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to read this stuff and then to go back to maybe your favorite movie or your favorite book or even some of the oldest texts. Like I was just, I just was revisiting the Odyssey. Um, and a lot of these storytelling principles apply just across the best stories, um, you know, from, from human history. Um, so it's cool. What prompted you to uh, convert your lecture live format into a podcast? I think it had a lot to do with, um, getting, you know, emails and, and hearing comments from people who weren't attend who weren't able to attend the event either because it was sold out or because they don't live in San Francisco and they're not just in the geographic area. Um, I would get emails from people who say like, Oh, did you record the event? Cause I'd love to hear it. I couldn't be there, but I'd love to, you know, hear the, hear the recording. Um, and then, you know, podcasts being so, uh, prevalent right now, there were definitely some people who explicitly said like, oh, this would be a great podcast um, because we have been audio recording the events from the beginning. Um, and so I, I was sort of sitting on this repository of doctors' audio stories, not doing anything with it. And I think part of the reason why is I just didn't have the skill set and I knew that if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it right. Um, and so I was waiting until until I was able to recruit a team, and I was. And I, there's this amazing um, woman who just graduated from Duke who came out to San Francisco to intern at one of our local NPR station uh, who is um, basically acting as a sound engineer and editor all in one. Um, and she's, you know, she's new at this, but she's, like, doing a really great job um, putting it all together. And so, really, without her, the podcast would not exist. Um, so, I, I, I was brewing in my mind, but um, it wasn't until this this amazing person came along that I was actually able to move forward with it. Um, and I saw how much work it is because, you know, scheduling the interview, you guys all know, scheduling the interview, doing the mixing, um, trying to splice in the music, getting a theme song, all of these things, um, they take time. But uh, I think it was worth it because now um, anyone can listen anywhere um and i think that's pretty cool the um the the first podcast episode featured um ben lerman uh he's yes. an emergency medicine physician and uh you know he, he despite starting with the nor what he calls the normal amount of empathy or maybe even a little more <laughs> he kind of lost it during his training um, and I think that's a common theme in medical education these days. There's something about medical education that just, you know, pummels it out of people. Um, he also said um, that for a while he, he wasn't the doctor that he wanted to be simply because he didn't have the bandwidth. You know, he was so focused on the technical aspects of being an, an emergency medicine doctor that he just didn't have the mental bandwidth to spend on his patients and on being empathetic to them. At the same time, though, we, you know, we say that storytelling and an appreciation of the arts and an understanding of, you know, how to look at the arts and observe them and how to, you know, 
all that can help with empathy. Um, are these two things exclusive or are they just part of the same thing? That's a great question. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, the job of a doctor is a really complex one and it draws on multiple different skill sets. And I think probably the skill set that's emphasized most or has been in the past anyway, is um, just sort of like intellectual horsepower. Like, can you drink the water from the fire hose? And I think that's crucial to being a physician because there is a lot to know. I think maybe these days it's probably less important that you memorize everything, A, because the amount of knowledge that exists is expanding so rapidly that I just don't know that one human mind can contain it all. And number two, we have resources now like computers and the internet and up to date where you don't have to memorize anything. You just kind of have to know when and where to look um, for the information. Um, but yes, I think the kind of um, uh, science-minded um, problem-solving memorization skill is really important for, for medicine. Um, but then there's like all these other skill sets that that we don't talk about as much that are equally important um, that I think I just didn't appreciate as much until I actually became a resident. Like like in medicine, you're working with people like constantly, um, unless you're, you're like a radiologist or something. Um, yeah. So <laughs> um, and even then you have <laughs> colleagues, ideally. Um, so, you know, like maybe we should be reading Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Like, how do you navigate, you know, tough personalities in the workplace? How do you um, navigate the difficult patient interaction, especially these days when, you know, opiates are such a big thing and you have patients who are demanding things that you can't give them or won't give them and how to deal with that. And, you know, also, um, I work at a safety net hospital, so I deal with a lot of substance abuse and mental illness, and there's a lot of personalities there that um, that I deal with, and I never really got any formal training on how to do that. And then there's this whole other layer that's more of like a spiritual layer. Like you are dealing, you're like doctors these days are are often taking up the role that like the priest used to in the old days, or um, like more of a religious or spiritual figure, like doc like am i dying you know like you have to be able to be in those conversations and kind of take a step back and talk to your patients about you know what what does it mean to live a good life actually and like what's important to you like that's a skill set that um i think these days they're teaching more in med school but probably back in the day they weren't as much and so um I don't know. I don't know how you place those on a hierarchy of importance. Like, I, I definitely think the science and the data and the diseases, I mean, that's like fundamental. That's just, you just have to have that in your armamentarium to be a doctor. Um, is it a question of like bandwidth? Like, you know, does that take up so much of your mental energy that, you know, you don't get to the other stuff until later? I don't know. Is there a way to teach them in parallel? Um, uh I, think I mean, it seems to me that that's schools. what we're trying to do these days. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think we get, we're starting to get more of that, but so much of the like rite of passage as a medical student, at least in my experience now has just been the like learning via direct experience. And that means the first time you go into it, you have no idea what you are doing. Like sometimes I don't know my head from my ass and I am being... <laughs> put in these roles of 
you know, having to be an educator for patients, having to sometimes play social worker, uh, having to uh, then learn the science, like side note, God bless up to date. Again, not an endorsement on the podcast, yeah, but uh, <laughs> when you mentioned it, I was like, yes, so much. Um, and so it's a lot. Yeah. All of those things. And I you know, just finished in psychiatry and it's a whole experience. And I feel like you know, I learned so much, but some of, I think that's probably where some of the, the burnout comes from inherent in our personalities is being good at things, knowing things, kind of knowing what to do, and then being put in this role where it's like, yeah, we're just going to kind of watch you. So do you have a sense of who your audience is uh, when they listen to the podcast? I think the audience, I think of it as like a series of concentric circles. So in the middle, you have, I would say, probably medical students and residents, um, people who are undergoing this transformation of like not a doctor to a doctor. Like, I just feel like that zone uh, is one where people might really benefit from hearing these stories. Um and then kind of the ring outside of that, maybe doctors who have been in practice for a long time who... Um, maybe are dealing with some of these issues as well. Maybe the ring outside of that is just healthcare. So um, we have had people tell stories that include, you know, includes nurses. We had a social worker, we had a chaplain, uh, we had a physical therapist once. Um, we're, we're still trying to figure out like, you know, are we predominantly doctors or how much do we want to open this up to just the healthcare profession in general? Sure. But I think certainly our audience um, should include that, or I hope it would include that. And then um, the circle outside of that is just the lay public, um, which I, I feel stupid to say because I feel like every podcast says that. But um, I don't know. I think there's a reason why all of those medical TV shows are successful. I think there is just this appetite uh, among lay people to kind of understand who doctors are and what their lives are like. Um, and uh I don't know. Being sick is a really scary experience. And um, there's a lot of kind of like power differentials that emerge when you show up at the big bad hospital and you're like holding your paper and you don't know where you're going and you're lost. And then finally you get there and then the doctor comes in, they have this white coat and they're like using all these words that you don't understand. And like, I don't know, people I think can be really intimidated by that. And I think hearing these stories may be a nice way to bridge um, for, for the medical profession to like build a bridge back to the communities that they serve and just kind of say like, Hey, just so you know, like we're human beings, just like you. Um, it's really nothing, nothing to be scared of here. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I imagine the audience. But I, I think one of the reasons why I reached out to you guys is I just felt like, um, this is something that, uh, medical students might really be interested in hearing and getting yeah. exposure to, um, yeah. as they're moving through the process. So absolutely. Yeah, and that's why that's why I said that I wanted to do this because <laughs> because um, yeah, there there aren't. You would a lot rather of... have a prostate uh, expert. <laughs> there's, there's room for that, but you know, maybe on maybe on another show. <laughs> um, I did love your la your last episode where you were reading the chief complaints the... about having like fireballs in my birth hole. Or whatever. <laughs> well, uh, I start urology in a month, so yeah. maybe I'll cultivate my for... own uh, nocturnist story about the traumatic first prostate exam I do. Yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> what have you learned at this point about by doing the live readings and now the podcast that you didn't know before you began? Hmm. Um, I think some of the stuff I've learned has just been, you know, 
like, what is the experience of being a doctor like for other people? I just, I feel so lucky and so privileged to be in this position where like random strangers from my hospital and other hospitals are just like sending me these like super personal accounts. Mm. Um, and sometimes it feels bad that we can't accept them all. Um, uh, and I, I just really, really, really privileged that people feel safe and comfortable to even like send me these things. Um, and I've learned a ton just from reading other people's stories. Like, you know, what is it like to be working at an LA County hospital and to be black and to be like stopped by the security guard coming out of the bathroom? Yeah. Um, and then like flash them your doctor badge and then they're like, oh, you can go, you know, like. Yeah. These are things that you would never really get access to otherwise yeah exactly so it's just opened my eyes just to how the breadth of like mm. the experience of physician and what it's like for different people mm. of different ages and races and backgrounds and cultures and that, i just think that's been really interesting um but then just more broadly i feel like i've i don't know i feel like the fact that these events um seem to have uh, really snowballed into like a thing just i think it's only reinforced my suspicion that like there is an appetite and a hunger for um uh ex like ex exploring um our jobs and the meaning of our jobs through this more artistic lens and it's just made me excited about the different directions that it could go and uh, kind of different manifestations that it can take yeah um and so that's been one of the takeaways is like wow like i think this work this is actually important and maybe i can make a career out of this somehow so <laughs> One, one of the things I hear physicians or physician writers wrestle with uh, or storytellers wrestle with is whether they have the right to tell their patients stories. Um, is that something that you thought about or struggled with? Yeah, I've thought about that a, a lot. Um, and I actually am glad you brought that up because I do get that question a lot from people is like, how do you strike the balance between patient confidentiality and freedom of speech and all of those things? Um and uh, the way that I approach it, there's a few ways. So number one, either you get signed permission from your patient um, if you want to include them in your story. Um, and often that's not possible because, you know, patient is gone or you saw them 10 years ago or they're dead or whatever. Um, and so in that case, uh, I just tell them to change um, enough details about the patient that they're not recognizable. So even sometimes going so far as like to change their gender or if it was a hat, make it a necklace, or if it was, they were from Guatemala, make them from Honduras, or just kind of like changing up the details like that um, is one way around it. But then I think the, the better way around it is also to make sure that the story is about them themselves. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the, the storyteller themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, doctor's instinct is to kind of like remove themselves. Like mm. sometimes someone will come up to me and they'll say, Oh, we have this great story for the nocturnist. Like this thing happened, this patient did or said this and their family did or said this and this happened and then that happened. And I'll say like, well, great. But like, how did that make you feel? Or how did that change your worldview? Or, um, did that remind you of something about yourself or did that, you know, help you come to grips with, uh, some issue that you had in your past? And I think really coaching people to, um, to make the story about their own transformation, however small. And if that story involves a patient encounter, so be it. But like, it really should more be, it, you shouldn't be telling someone else's story. You should be telling your own story. Um, and so that's uh, one way that I, that I coach people is to really make this 
make this yours. So how has the Nocturnus impacted you? Since everyone has been telling their stories, how has it impacted your story? (laughs) I don't know. It's been pretty crazy. I have to say, like, two years ago, I never would have expected that, you know, I'd be, like, buying all this equipment and, like, (laughs) inviting people over to my house to interview them and uh, having strangers send me, you know, these narratives. Um, I I think... It's it's changed me in the sense that well, I, it's been an enormous education. I'll just say I'll just put that out there up front, like not just in how to tell a good story and in the story theory and all of that stuff, but also in like how to run an organization. Um, I actually like wasn't ever that. Uh, big of a leader like I don't know in my med school there are a ton of people who like founded nonprofits in Haiti when they were in high school yeah. and, like all this crazy <laughs> shit retweet yeah. um, I was never that person um, I just kind of got good grades and went along and did my thing um, and this is really the first time that I've ever like had a thing that's been mine and been my baby and I've been like you know, growing the team and learning how to be a leader and a manager and, um, that kind of thing. And that I'm just like in such the beginning stages. Um, I'm sure I could be doing a much better job of like communicating with my team and assembling it and just like running the organization. Um, so that's, uh, a skill that kind of popped up and it's like, Oh, I guess, I guess that's something that I can work on. Um, so that's been good. And it's also just, uh, it's made me excited about the arts again. Um, I finished residency in June, so my schedule is much more free and it's just given me, I think the, the permission to move forward and like keep, keep up with the artistic stuff and, and also to have that validated by my community, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's kind of cool to be like the person on campus who's like the storytelling person or like the art person, because if I come to my boss and I say, like, I want to, you know, write a nonfiction, like, piece for this magazine or something, like, they, it's it's like they approve it more, I think, um, now that I have the Nocturnus under my belt, um, than they would if I were just, like, saying that out of the blue. Um, it gives me some credibility, I think, which is actually, like, really useful as I, as I move forward. It's good to have credibility. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> um. But it's been like super neat to interview you and hear your side of the story because, you know, we've like mentioned you're a great interviewer. And I think that's like a really strong point of the podcast is getting to hear you interview the physicians after the fact. Um, but you give me like a very Terry Gross-esque vibe <laughs> when listening. Um, but also it's it's relaxed. You know, yeah. the pace of the show is very relaxed. Um, I'm always tempted on our show to edit out the silences, but you leave them in, I think, at least uh, mostly. And that really helps with the pacing of your show. Like, it makes sense for your show. It feels almost like it was a conscious choice to sort of counter the frenetic pace of graduate medicine. (laughs) That, you know... Am I giving you too much credit? (laughs) You're giving me more credit than I deserve. Um, And... uh, you know, it's actually great to, to get feedback from other medical podcasters. I mean, there aren't a ton out there. And, um, 
yeah, it's just, it's great to hear that it's hitting the right balance. It's funny when you say that you like the interviewing, cause I, I'm always like, I, maybe you guys have this too, but playing it back and hearing myself, I'm always like, Oh God, <laughs> that was a yeah. stupid joke. Oh, what was yeah. I doing? I yeah. never listen to the podcast I'm on. <laughs> I have to listen to every single one of the podcasts that I'm on <laughs> and I'm always editing myself out rather than my co-host because I, I just feel like I'm an idiot <laughs> when, Good, when, good. Well, uh, I guess that's a universal. Yeah, no, thing. it's not just maybe, you. maybe not for Terry Gross. Maybe she likes it. <laughs> she, has, she just puts herself to sleep with her own boys. <laughs> she, she has people, though. You know what I'm saying? Like she has people who do all that. We'll invite her to be on the show so we can have a chat about it. Oh yeah, and oh, perfect for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we said, I I, I wish that uh, someday when you decide to take this a little bit wider, we could be your uh, your first satellite location we don't want to steal your idea but we want to contribute to it so you know keep us in mind someday uh, i will yeah don't be strangers let's be in touch i yeah. think you guys um i haven't really had the moment just to say i think what you guys are doing is really like can i drop an f-bomb yeah it's oh. fucking awesome <laughs> yeah. I, okay another side note was in i can't remember which episode i was listening to oh it must have been the code blue episode but that you didn't edit out the f word, I was like, this just makes it so real and so relatable. <laughs> Wait a minute, you can't call it the f word. Kylie, <laughs> that doesn't make I like any it. sense. I like what do you it. mean? It has to be the f word. People say, say the f word, and then I like calling it the f word. Oh, okay. All right. Conscious choice, fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You do you. You do you. Um, no, I think your guys' show is is great, and I I only wish that when I was a med student that I had something like that to listen to because. Um, it's great. I, you guys are hitting on such such important topics. Like, you know, there's a lot of lightness and fun, but the the stuff about you know how to handle um, you know sexual advances from patients and all of those things. Like, that's just not something that I ever learned about or thought about or talked about in medical school. And it's just great that you're giving folks uh, folks this this resource. It's awesome. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, if you live in the Bay Area, come to one of our events. You can subscribe on our website, thenocturnist.com. Um, and if you don't live in the Bay Area, we have a podcast. So just check <laughs> us out. We're The Nocturnists. Um, and we've got some great stories. And we're wrapping up season one uh, in, a, in a month or two um, and gearing up for season two potentially next year. So stay tuned. Awesome. Dr. Emily Silverman, thank you for being on the show today. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun. <laughs> and we'll be putting a link to your show along with some other topics we've discussed in this episode's show notes at theshortcode.com. But for now, we're done. Marissa, Sanjeeva, Kylie, Brendan, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me. And, and thank you, listeners, for making us part of your week. If you like what you heard today, we hope you we've earned your subscription. Also, we'd be grateful if you'd open your Apple Podcasts app right now. You've probably already got it open. And leave us a review there. Reviews help us to come to the attention of other listeners who might benefit from our show. If you have a suggestion for something we should talk about or seek barely informed sleep-deprived advice, you can send those things to theshortcoats at gmail.com or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Atmosphere. Talk to you in one week.